0: You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Inside Healthcare, NCQA's podcast. I'm Lawrence Green, NCQA's communication specialist. Today, we feature a conversation about the state of healthcare with NCQA president Peggy O'Kane and Dr. Vivian Lee, president of health platforms at Verily Life Sciences and author of The Long Fix solving America's healthcare crisis with strategies that work for everyone. Let's get started.
1: Our guest today is Dr. Vivian Lee, and you can read all about her. She's one of the most accomplished people that I know in healthcare. And one of the things that I find interesting, and I guess it's no surprise, is that people who are accomplished in healthcare, they find a lot of reasons why healthcare isn't doing what it should be doing. And so in Um, We're very lucky that Dr. Lee has a book out um, called The Long Fix, it's terrific, I just got it. It basically is a kind of diagnosis and a prescription for healthcare in America is the way I would uh, put it. And so we're going to be trying to drill down into some of those thoughts here uh, today. But um, one of the things that I thought you could tell people about is your remarkable biography you start off talking about a doctor in Norman, Oklahoma, where you grew up, who kind of took you under his wing and mentored you and encouraged you to go to medical school. And um, I wonder if we could start with that. And there's very, a very distinguished resume, including being a professor of medicine at NYU and the head of the health system at University of Utah, where you did amazing things. And we were all hearing about amazing things that you were doing when you were there, and now you're the president, is that correct, of Verily, which is the healthcare care part? Uh,
2: health platforms at Verily. Mm-hmm.
1: Health platforms. So um, we're just thrilled to have you here today. And um, with that, why don't you just, I, I gave the, uh, the resume stuff, but maybe you can add some color to that.
2: Sure. Well, I, I did become interested in medicine um, from a very fortunate encounter with a local physician in Norman, Oklahoma. Actually, my junior high school teacher um, introduced us and for many years, every Saturday morning, I'd go on rounds with them at the hospital, at Norman Regional Hospital. He was an internist and we didn't have hospitalists back then. And he was really just kind of exactly what you might imagine or, or most of us sort of idealize medicine to be. He spent time with his patients, He really, he was an excellent diagnostician. Uh, Back then, MRI hadn't really, hadn't really become uh, popular and CTs were just getting started. So he really relied on physical exam and and careful, um, taking a careful history. And and I just remember that I was just so inspired by those relationships that I wanted to be a doctor. And then uh, as I write about in the book, I disappeared into classrooms and into medical school and into uh, residency, um, went to medical school at Harvard, did my residency program at Duke, and then by the time I had merged, I felt like medicine had already changed a lot, and this was in the 90s, in the early 90s, and, um, and then over the course of my career, I've just seen it move, feels like it's moved further, further away from what many of us thought medicine would be when we first got in and what I'm hoping is that, of course, you know, I'm not necessarily looking to return to the past when most people died of heart attacks when they had them or died of a stroke when they had them as opposed to how we are seeing uh, health care now. I think those advances are just remarkable. Uh, but I do feel that we've lost the plot a little bit in terms of just how much the industry has been driven by the fee-for-service model of care. Without as much regard to health outcomes, uh, much less patient experience or even, say, the co-production of health, that partnership between patients and clinicians in achieving better health. And so I'd like, my, my goal was to share stories and share great examples of how that is even happening today, and then how those examples can really spread across the country.
1: Right. So before we go into that, which we're very much looking forward to, the book is excellent. I highly recommend it to people. Um, uh, tell us a little about Verily and what Verily is doing um, right now.
2: Sure, I'm happy to do that. So as you mentioned, I was at the University of Utah leading the healthcare system there as the dean of the medical school and senior vice president for six years. And after I stepped down, I had a year's sabbatical when I had the chance to work on the book and uh, visit more sites and collect more really amazing stories. And then I was thinking about what to do next, was just about to join another healthcare system to to be the CEO there. It was actually going to be a fantastic uh, opportunity. When um, the folks had barely reached out to me again. And I have to say that it was through a few really important conversations that I had with some mentors who said, you know, Vivian, if you go and work at another health system, if you're lucky, knock on wood, you might have, you and your team might have a positive influence on that community. But in a but in the, the technology space now, especially with companies that have that are very mission-driven about what they want to do in healthcare, um, there's really the opportunity to scale. And I think one of the challenges that we're seeing across the country, that's even reflected in my book, is that we have so many bright spots, we have so many local successes, but our challenge really is scaling those. And so, what we're thinking about at Verily is really, how do we leverage technology in order to scale, bring bring to scale the kinds of changes that uh, we think really need to happen in healthcare. So, I'll give you one example. Uh, One area that uh, I work on that is part of health platforms at Verily is digital medicine, digital health, particularly for individuals who have chronic diseases. We started a company called Onduo, and Onduo is uh, was originally set up to manage patients with type two diabetes. It now is expanded to weight loss, nutrition, hypertension, mental well being, for example. But just starting with diabetes a couple of years ago, uh, when I first joined the company, I was it was just really remarkable to me. It's a combination of um, sensor technology, so a continuous glucose monitor which enables an individual, instead of pricking their finger, to check their blood glucose. Now they can put this device on, and it is technology that is becoming increasingly low cost and affordable. And it measures your blood sugar 24-7, transmits that to a, your cell phone so you can actually see for the first time your blood sugar pattern throughout the day. And instead of recording meals and snacks, you can actually take pictures of your meals and snacks on the phone, uses some artificial intelligence, can actually recognize those meals and snacks. But even more importantly, for the first time, individuals who have type 2 diabetes or those who are trying to lose weight or anybody really can make a visual association between what they're eating and what it's doing to their blood sugars. Similarly with exercise and sleep. And then there's some telehealth. You know, I think that human touch is just incredibly important with coaches or with physicians who, again, also have some artificial intelligence tools who can identify patterns so that we know that everyone's physiology is different and Peggy, when you eat a bowl of cereal or a bowl, a bowl of oatmeal, and when I eat one, we actually will respond differently. And so the recommendations that we make might be different in terms of how we might adjust our diets. Seeing that in patients' hands at scale, that technology can be put in uh, in place where there are few physicians. Right now, it does require broadband. So that is a big challenge, I think, for digital health. Uh, but it, it can be um, distributed widely in making healthcare much more accessible, as well as a truly personalized experience. And that's the kind of work that we're doing at Verily um, that I that I hope will be able to drive not only better health, but also I should mention that we're also trying to push the business model. So we're really interested in contracting in a value-based way. Uh, the last couple of contracts we signed, we're only paid for outcomes. Really interesting. We're only paid if HBA1C is reduced and if we can impact other measures of, of outcomes and costs. Yeah. So um, I think there are just really interesting opportunities there in that space.
1: Right. So I mean, we've just been through
2: a, a major
1: trauma. In fact, we're still in a major trauma. But you know, the first wave, or the first—I uh, don't want to say first wave, because we're still in it. But what we saw in places that were hit hard was. Patients, even places that weren't hit hard, patients were afraid to come to the doctor, and there was this rollout of telemedicine in places that had been dabbling in it or avoiding it, and so forth. Um, and you know, we've just convened a task force to try to figure out what's great, right, what's the right public policy environment. But I think for those of us in healthcare who were enthusiasts for more quality, affordable healthcare we're kind of waiting for the risk model to grow. And it seems like there's a lot of hesitation on the part of health systems uh, because it's really kind of upside down from the way they've always done their their work. And as a former head of a health system, and I noted that the university uh, or the state Medicaid program in Utah put you on a budget, right? And it gave you prospective payment, which is value-based payment. And so how did that change your
2: life?
1: That I think that's it part of what you're driving at in your book.
2: So that That is exactly what I'm driving at. And I think that the COVID crisis right now is truly a crisis. And as Churchill said, never waste a good crisis. So there is an opportunity to maybe accelerate some of these changes that we've all been waiting for for a long time. When I was leading the University of Utah's healthcare system, as you mentioned, we were basically told by the state's Medicaid office, we are going to flip you to a, uh, basically a a capitated payment model, value-based payment model. And I tell the story of a particular patient who uh, was really notable because in the previous year, she was a Medicaid patient of ours. She had been in our emergency room over 50 times. And she was one of those frequent flyers as we talk about. And of course we knew that she needed a primary care doc we knew that she needed more social support but under that fee for service payment model which we had been under we weren't particularly incentivized to really build that infrastructure out so once utah really changed the model or announced that they were going to change the model our attitude you know our attitude and our our intensity about this issue just to be perfectly candid about it really changed and so instead of just having her visit our hospital, you know, 50 times the next week, we assigned her to a primary care doctor. We actually assigned her to a care manager. And we actually had um, even provided some, some transportation services. And um, I think we really made a difference to her health care. That was really a lesson that was then reinforced by some of our inpatient lessons that was more of an ambulatory example, but on the inpatient side with bundle payment pilot projects, we looked all of a sudden at how we were spending money, our actual costs of care, not what we were charging, and realized we needed to get those under control for the patients who were coming into our health systems. And I, I write about that also in the long fix. Um, I think in order for us to really pivot to value, health systems. Uh, need to be made responsible for those better outcomes and for cost of care and be given the right tools to do that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, uh, in the COVID, um, we saw that the finances of health systems and many practices went really downhill. And um, I thought, interestingly, some of the value-based payment models because they were on monthly payments, were actually better off. And I wonder if you think, like, which way is this going to go? Because you, know, you read one article and it says everybody's going back and trying to jam into the old fee-for-service turn-the-crank model. Um, but some are looking at more favorably at value-based payment. What do you think? Or I mean, I'm sure it's not going to be one thing. I I, I wonder if you could just say a few things to our. Yeah, that's a it's a great
2: observation. I I went back and talked to some of the groups that I had interviewed for the book, like Chen Med and Iora Health, right. who had been involved in the Medicare Advantage contracts. And actually, they'd done very they they had done pretty well by comparison, because they were paid as Chris Chen calls it, the subscription model. You know, he's paid right. per month, um, mm-hmm. not on a fee for service basis for caring for his Medicare Advantage patients. And so as a result, he actually has some really, just some really compelling stories about how they could use those dollars to help provide better care for their patients during the COVID crisis, setting up their clinics more as urgent care facilities in a way that patients could feel safe, providing more at-home care or more, say, home delivery for vacations or prescription refills, for example, just some really sensible ways in which we would want to be using our healthcare dollars to help patients during a pandemic, as opposed to, you know, what we're seeing in most of the country. Um, The other example, I think, outside of Medicare Advantage that I found really interesting as I was doing the research for the book was also the military health system and the VA. Many people have thought a lot about the VA health system, maybe not as much about the military health system. Military health system, I think, is a system, again, that's also on a, a global budget and, again, is not driven as much by the fee-for-service model of care. And while it's, I'm not claiming that it's a perfect system, it's definitely not a perfect system. No system is perfect. But there are outcomes, uh, and especially the VA's outcomes, are in most cases better than or at least comparable to the civilian side. So I think we have a lot of lessons to learn there. I, I think really this is a window of opportunity now for payers to rethink how they contract with health systems. We've seen a little bit of that. On the commercial side, we've seen some, some efforts to uh, really move towards um, more of a value-based model. I think it's a challenge for many commercial payers, frankly, to move to that model as it is on the provider side. Uh, but I think there's a recognition that um, at least some components of it are in everybody's interest right now to move towards. Um, I, I also think, sorry, one, one other thing I think is really important to raise, which I've become quite concerned about, is the need for um, ensuring that all Americans have access to care. You know, we we were already at around maybe 28 million Americans who were uninsured before the COVID crisis, and just yesterday I think a report came out, or maybe the day before, there're 5.4 million uninsured as a result of all the layoffs, and that really worries me because as we're thinking about um, the money that, that is being transferred from the federal government to shore up our health care systems, um, I think it would really be pennywise pound foolish to end up paying for uh, these folks who are right now uninsured, letting them get sick at home. You know, uh, there was a survey that showed that 14% of them, even if they had symptoms of COVID, would not seek care because of concern about the costs. So it would really be penny-wise, pound-foolish not to provide health care coverage for those individuals who really are employable. They just were un- became unemployed in the last three months. And to jeopardize their employability because of a preventable or treatable health condition over the next few months would just be so unwise. Right. So I think that's another issue with COVID that I really hope that we think about carefully. So we, you know, I
1: think, Don Berwick said, I'm not sure who else has said it, but it's been said many times that our healthcare system was designed to produce exactly what it's producing. And I think that the COVID crisis has actually sharpened everyone's vision. I mean, it's obviously made it perform more poorly than it was performing. But um, you have a prescription, I think, in the, the last chapter of your book, And I wonder, you know, you talked about fee-for-service and moving to kind of where everybody lives on a budget, you know, prospective payment. I wonder what other things you might want to highlight in our last few minutes. I
2: think there's a real, um, our country is really driven by a capitalistic view of how we think about healthcare. And rather than debate that, I think it is important to think about, well, if we are trying to have health systems or, or components of the healthcare industry compete in order to drive more innovation and more value to the consumer, then some of that competition should be made, uh, I, I think we should, I describe it as right now we are flying into the headwinds of capitalism in the sense that all of the usual efforts to drive better Uh, better quality products and be more innovative are now being channeled towards just more fee for service. And instead what we really need to do is to sort of flip that around so that that innovation is really driving to better value and better outcomes. And one way to achieve that is to look very critically at, for example, the use of data for pricing pharmaceuticals. We have cost effectiveness data. Many other countries use those data. Those data, if they became more transparent and more available to not necessarily consumers, but to purchasers of pharmaceuticals, including Medicare, allowing that to happen. I think that could be very, very important. Similarly, data, the use of data, big data to provide the kinds of analytics in order to predict who might get sick, that kind of data could be very powerful. And if it were made more accessible and um, where uh, consumers or other People in the healthcare industry could compete on their ability to do that kind of predictive analytics and to use data to drive better health outcomes. I think we would have a better, better healthcare system. So I think that's that's one piece. And then the second piece is just, um, you know, I do believe that um, we're entering into a point we've been accelerated towards this really a tipping point in terms of healthcare in this country, and it's just so important that everyone. At least have a fundamental understanding of how our healthcare system works and why policy decisions are so critical to our future. Um, we are we are already in the U.S. economy, and I, I've been encouraging people to, if they have sons and daughters or nieces and nephews who are thinking about healthcare or people who are in early stages of training, um, if you don't read this book, read one of many other good books that are in. That are available about healthcare and get that basic understanding of the business of healthcare. Because so many of us work in the field, we don't really understand enough about how it works and the critical policy decisions that are up ahead that we should be advocating for in order to have a better health system that we can all work successfully in.
1: I saw a video of the head of the Norwegian Medical Association. This is a while ago, and um, she was she was the president, you know, the chair of the board and. She was saying to Norwegian doctors, I know you all say, "Let me just practice medicine. You go. You go do the system stuff." But we have to think as doctors of the system as our patient, and I think that's exactly what you are doing in this book. And um, I applaud you, and I encourage you to keep telling these stories. You you have a real gift for explaining this. And um, I just wanna thank you so much for everything you've been doing in your career. You really are an inspiration.
2: Oh, thanks Peggy. I feel the same way about you. So thank you very much.
0: And that does it for this edition of Inside Healthcare. Before you go, make sure you register for NCQA's upcoming quality innovation series at ncqa.org backslash series this live streamed and on-demand event will feature talks and seminars from over 40 healthcare experts over a three-month period starting September 17th. Thanks again for joining us. We will see you again. All the best.